Well, good morning and happy Father's Day. I don't think there's another privilege I have greater than being a father, watching my kids grow and being able to have an influence in their lives, hopefully for good. (laughs) Father's Day is the day to remember our fathers and to honor them, to appreciate them. Our fathers are very influential in our lives. They direct a lot of our lives. Many of us spend most of our lives wondering, does my dad really approve of me? Does he really consider me worthy? Have I met his expectations? And that's hard for us. Uh, We struggle with that. It's a powerful drive in us to want our father's approval. And I think that's God-given. I think God planted that in our hearts because ultimately what we want is his approval, our Heavenly Father's approval. I found in my life, much of my life, my father's no longer alive, but spent a lot of my life trying to somehow earn his approval and not always sure if I had it. But the good news is if we've trusted Jesus as our Lord and we've entered into his family, become part of the family of God, if we believed in the gospel, believe in Jesus' death and resurrection for us, then we have a heavenly Father who says forever and ever, you are part of my family and I approve of you. You see, our heavenly Father says, I look at you and I see Christ. I see Jesus. And therefore, I delight in you. You are my child and I love you no matter what. It's the only Heavenly Father can do that completely and absolutely. And every one of us who have trusted Jesus have a Heavenly Father like that. He says, you are worthy. I delight in you as you are. Because when He sees us, He sees Christ. He declares us righteous in Him. But then as a loving Heavenly Father, He doesn't just leave us there, but He begins working in our lives to transform us, to make us objectively, truly like Christ. And so he takes this lump of clay with all our struggles and faults and all that we are and begins to mold us more and more into Christ's likeness. And that's part of his loving, caring hand upon us. He loves us perfectly, so he plants his life in us and begins changing us from the inside out. He doesn't just leave us where we are, but he works in our lives. But what is he working into our lives? What are the things that he is changing us toward? And what does he want of us? What will please him? What, what, will, what is he doing that we can cooperate with and participate in in our lives? Well, our passage today, I think, gives us three main qualities that he wants to work in our lives so that we can participate in what he's doing in changing us and molding us. So we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 today. We're beginning a new book. Finished 1 Thessalonians, we're going into 2 Thessalonians. Short book, just three chapters. There's a lot about Jesus' second coming, His return. And as we look at this together, we will look at what we can do to work out what God is already working in to our lives. Three main qualities. Let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right in the introduction, Paul wants us to think about God as a father. As we go through this book and as we look at what the principles are that come out of this in shaping our lives, what he wants us to be, he says right away, let's think about God as a father, as a loving father, as one who has given his son for us. He's the one who loves us. He's the one who's taken responsibility for our care and our upbringing. So Paul repeats it because it's so important for him. God is not some distant God, but he's a personal God. He's not a distant father. Some of you had distant fathers, but he's a personal father who's involved in every aspect of our lives. You see, all of us have had imperfect fathers, haven't we? Every one of us. We couldn't avoid that. But when God became your father, everything changed. Everything changed. We were adopted into his family. We became part of the family of God. We were born again. His life was planted in us. But, but we were raised by imperfect fathers. But to the extent that they loved us well, to the extent that there was good in them and how they treated us, you see, that was a gift from God. Because it pointed us, it was a reflection to us of our Heavenly Father. But get this, to the extent that our earthly fathers failed us, it was a gift from God. Because it aroused that longing in us for a Heavenly Father, for someone who truly was what we longed for, what we needed in our lives. So even our Father's failures can bring us closer to God. So as Paul introduces, he says, think of God as your Father, and then he gives a couple of things that we are to look at in verse uh, 3 and what he's thankful about in the Thessalonians. And listen to what he says. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Paul says, here's what I'm thankful about in you. There's an expanding faith in your life, an enlarged faith, and an increasing love. You see, what pleases our Heavenly Father is that, as we see in the Thessalonians, we grow. We grow, just like any good father, right? You have a, a little child and you, you delight in that child. But what you really want, you're not looking for perfection. You're not saying, okay, you're two, you should be getting straight A's. What's the problem here? <laughs> We don't do that. No, all we want of a two-year-old is that they grow. And ultimately, that's what the Heavenly Father wants in us. He just wants us to be growing, growing in faith and growing in love. Not perfection, but participation in what he's doing. What does it mean to have an expanding faith, a growing faith, an enlarging faith? The word for enlarge there is, a, is one that's an agricultural term. It's for a plant to grow. Bigger and bigger. And the idea, I think he's saying, is that our faith 
is maybe small, but is it growing? What pleases God is just that our faith would begin to expand more and more. You see, faith is not like we sometimes think about it. It's not all or none. Do you have faith or you don't have faith? No, we all have faith. It's just maybe very small. And what God wants is that that would begin to expand to take in more and more of your life and your world around you. So it's important that we think about this and we ask ourselves the question, am I growing in my faith? Am I learning to trust God in new places, in new ways? I'd been in ministry for about 10 years and I realized at one point that my life was becoming narrower and narrower because I'd experienced some difficulties, some hard times, and I was afraid. And out of that fear, I found myself avoiding things that might hurt. And yet I found my life getting more and more constricted. And God began to speak to my heart and say, you've got to trust me. Faith needs to enlarge. You need to trust me with these fears. And so that's the real question for us. Are we learning to trust God with our fears, with our dreams, with our sins, with our ministry? Are we feeling the prompting of God and and stepping out in a new way to trust God in a new way? Are you learning to trust God by stepping out of your comfort zone and to trust Him a little more with your time? Lord, I want to give this over to you. I want to trust you with your money with ministry you might have, with your own heart? Are you learning to trust Him and enlarge your faith? That's all that God wants. Not perfection, but simply an enlargement in the way we're trusting Him as a Father who loves us and is involved in our lives. He also wants us to expand or increase our love. Paul thanks the Thessalonians for that. Thanks God for their growing love, their increasing love. Here the word for increase is a little different. It's a word that means to add more one by one, to become more numerous. I like that picture of love. You see, I think what he's saying is what pleases God is when we expand our circle of love. (laughs) We have people we love. We have people we're involved with. But are you learning to incorporate new people in it? Are you reaching out to that lonely neighbor, to that person at work who is needy? Are you learning to reach out to people in our community and get involved in a ministry perhaps that will help you to love people better? Are you trapped in your own narrow set of relationships or are you increasing in love? And what God loves is when we reach out with His love with just one more person. Just add one. Add one person to your circle of love. Maybe there's a fatherless child you know who just needs an adult in their lives. How is God prompting you to reach out? Is there somebody on your heart and your mind? He's saying, hey, I long for you to just expand in your circle. I remember as a college student, I was busy in school and I was overwhelmed and I was working in the food service, washing dishes, and the guy who ran our department was just a crusty old guy named Sam. And Sam was kind of hard hard to get along with and um, just, said things that weren't all that pleasant sometimes. And and yet God just kept putting him on my heart. And here I was, a young guy, 20 or so, and but God said, go spend time with Sam. And I'm thinking, me? Spend time with Sam? And yet he just kind of prompted. And so I would go sit with Sam and we would talk 
about his life and I'd hear his stories. And you know what? God really blessed me from that. It was kind of a scary step, but I think that's what God wants. He just wants us to broaden our circle of love, to reach out to others, to care for them, to love others. What, what is your Heavenly Father working into your life? He's working out an expanding faith. He's trying to prompt you to trust Him in a new way and that you might incorporate one new person into your life and seek to love them. That's what He wants. He just wants us to be growing. He just, like the loving Father, wants us to be growing. Secondly, He wants us to endure, endure and expand in our endurance of suffering. Verse 4, Paul writes this, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your endurance or perseverance and for your faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Paul repeats it because he wants to be pretty clear that Yeah, you're struggling, you're suffering, it's hard, but I want you to endure. And God, the Father, most of all, wants us to endure. Verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. So you'll be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. So he wants endurance in our suffering. Because we do suffer, don't we, as believers? We suffer in this life. Life is not easy. It's hard. And one of the hardest questions we face as believers is this one. If God is such a loving Father and He cares for us so much, why does He allow us to suffer? Any believer who's faced that has asked that question. Lord, if You're a loving Father, why do You allow me to suffer? in this way? And the simplest answer to that is He allows us to suffer because He is a loving Father. (laughs) He is a loving Father because He knows what suffering accomplishes in our lives. There's a number of things it accomplishes. He knows that suffering does some wonderful things. First of all, suffering is what changes us into His likeness. Suffering is what chips away all the junk in our lives so that's what, what's left is the life of Christ in us. And it's suffering that accomplishes that purpose. Michelangelo, the famous sculptor, sculptor who also painted the Sistine Chapel and sculpted the David and many others, was made a beautiful angel. And someone asked, how did you do it? He said, I just saw the angel in the marble. And carved until I set him free. (laughs) Another quote similar. He says, carving's easy. You just go down to the skin and stop. (laughs) You see, that's the process that God is working in our lives, isn't it? The, The hammering away through the tribulations and struggles we face is what chips away everything except the beauty that's left, which is Christ himself. So God in His love allows suffering in our lives because it accomplishes something terrific. It changes us. But not only that, He knows it does something else. It is what releases the life of Christ in us. It's what releases the very life of Christ. Somehow when we get squeezed by life, by tribulations, by the struggles we face and and are overwhelmed and all of that, the life of Christ squirts out 
and gets on other people. Isn't that marvelous? It's a beautiful thing. And it's the, it's the suffering that accomplishes that. It's the suffering that makes that happen. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11. Paul writes, For we are being delivered over to death day by day, that the life of Christ might be manifest in our mortal bodies. You see, we experience suffering so that his life might be released And also, he knows that suffering is the only way of the kingdom. That's the way the kingdom expands. Jesus showed us that, right? The disciples thought he would come as a conquering king, but he came as a suffering servant. And the kingdom began to expand and change hearts and lives. And that's true today as well. As we suffer as his children, his kingdom gets expanded through that. It's the way of the kingdom until he comes to set all things right. He will bring justice. He will set all things right, but not yet. So God loves us enough to allow us to suffer. What suffering do we experience? What are the things that we struggle with? Well, certainly there's normal life. There's the tribulations of life that we all experience as humans in this world, the flat tires and and difficulties and financial struggles and all those things that are part of living in a fallen world. We experience tribulations and squeezings. But as Christians, we also experience persecutions. Now, much of the world experiences a lot of persecution as Christians. If you are a Christian, then you will be persecuted and you may lose your life for your faith. In much of the world and throughout history, And many of us go, well, we're not really persecuted in America, are we? Well, I think we are. I think there's ways we are persecuted because you need to remember we are followers of Christ and we are declaring He is Lord and no one else. And there is a kingdom that we are following. We're following a different king than everyone else. And we declare that there's only one way to God through Jesus. And believe me, folks, That's not a popular message in our world. So we experience persecution in many ways. For example, simply turn on the TV and you find that the whole attitude and value system is against our Christian faith. So we experience living in a world that doesn't fit who we are. If you watch TV very long or look at our world, you know, it's pretty interesting to me that it's okay to make fun of Christians, to criticize Christians. But it's not okay to criticize any other religious group. Have you noticed that in our culture, in our politically correct world? So we experience that as believers living in this world. You probably have had people around you, the thinking of our age is that Christianity is just a crutch. It's for the weak. You need that? (laughs) You're not very together, are you? You're, you're a wimp. You're weak. Christianity's for just weak weaklings. Christianity in our culture is seen as stupid. Hey, the intellectual elite in our universities and in our media, not very many of them are Christians, so you must just be kind of dumb if you follow Christianity. That's the spirit of our age. Christians are seen as intolerant. How can you say there's one way to Jesus? You know, the primary value of our world is tolerance. Accept everything. 
Anything you want to do is fine. But as Christians, we say, no, everything is not okay and there is only one way to the Heavenly Father. And that's not a popular message. Christianity is seen as dangerous even in our world, especially since 9-11 and all that's gone on with the terrorists, the, the Islamic terrorists. And people look at that and they say, wow, they believe strongly in their faith. They're fanatical. And so anybody who's fanatical about anything is seen as dangerous as well as Christians. So we get labeled in our world, and that's persecution. So we do experience persecution by living in a world that is essentially post-Christian. And what does our Heavenly Father want of us then? Endurance. As the Thessalonians are enduring their suffering because they experienced real suffering and probably a number of them were being killed for their faith. But what God wants of us is simply hang in there. I'll give you the strength along the way, but hang in there. Don't run away. Don't turn your back on your faith. Don't stop sharing the truth. Don't keep growing. You know, don't, in other words, don't hide out just to make it through life, but instead keep living a Christian life where you're trusting God and living for Him. Endure. Endure. Hang in there. Let trials do their work in you. Don't seek out trials. We don't have to do that. <laughs> They'll find us. But don't run away from them either. Just keep following Jesus as Lord. So He wants us to endure and our Heavenly Father also wants us to live an expectant life. And that's the rest of this chapter. An expectant life. Expecting God to act. He wants us to expect that He's an active Father who is involved in our lives and that He is going to set all things right eventually, but He's also involved in our lives right now. So expect some things. First of all, expect justice. Expect justice. Verse 6 through 10. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Strong words here. Paul's encouraging the Thessalonians and encouraging us that what God, our Heavenly Father, wants is that we will expect justice. You see, we live in a world that's full of evil, and evil seems often to win. There's horrible things going on in our world. And we sin, see sin all around us in our culture and immorality, and in our own lives we struggle with our own flesh and our own sinfulness. But we should expect that God will set all things right, that He is not ignoring our pain or our suffering. He will someday, when He returns, He will set everything right. He will deal with evil once for all. He will bring true justice to this unjust world. And that includes judgment on unbelievers and on those who do harm to His children. Judgment Day is coming. It is. It's part of our message. It's part of what God wants us to expect. 
Hell is real. Now, again, that's not a popular message in our culture. And sometimes we struggle with that as believers, but the reality is hell is real. This is a moral universe. Sin will be judged. Evil will be eradicated. Sin always has to be judged, and there's only two choices for it. Either sin has been judged in Jesus on the cross, and you put your faith in that, and so your sin has been dealt with on the cross. It's been judged already, done, finished. Jesus took care of it. Or you will be judged for your sin. Either you trust Jesus for his death, that your sin was judged on him, or you yourself will face the judgment. Those are the only two options. You see, sin must be judged. And who will be judged? Verse 8 tells us. God will return, Jesus will return, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Two statements he says, they don't know God and they don't obey the gospel. Now I think he's talking about the same people because the reason you don't know God is because you don't obey the gospel. Now wait a minute, what are you saying here, Jackson? Because we get to heaven not by obeying, right, but by trusting. Well, what is the gospel? To obey the gospel, the gospel is Jesus died on the cross for us and rose again And therefore, anyone who believes will be saved. So to obey the gospel is simply to believe in what Jesus did for you. So everybody who believes will be rescued. But to those who don't believe, they will be judged. Those who have not trusted in what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's the dividing line. You're in one side or the other. So those who have refused to receive Jesus' death and resurrection are the ones who will be judged. Again, this is hard for us, right? Because we tend to think that how could a loving God, if he's really a loving God, how could he send anybody to hell? Right? That's a hard question. That's a good question. In essence, it's the wrong question. (laughs) It's one we ask. But... Here's how we should look at it, I think. You see, because all of us have rebelled, all of us are on death row. Every human being is on death row. We've already judged ourselves. We're already under judgment. Every human being. But God, in his love, comes down and says, you know what, I will take your punishment. My son will die for you. And if you just trust him, you can have life. But God doesn't send people to hell. He just gives them what they've already chosen, a life without him. Max Lucado says this, How could a loving God send people to hell? That's a commonly asked question, but it reveals some misconceptions. First, God does not send people to hell. He simply honors their choice. Hell is the ultimate expression of God's high regard for the dignity of man. He has never forced us to choose him even when that means we would choose hell. So he gives us dignity, the dignity of making a choice. So who will be judged? Those who choose not to trust him. What will judgment look like? 
Well, there's a pretty good picture of hell here, I think, in verse 9. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Judgment, hell, is essentially separation from God forever. It's eternal ruin. It's eternal separation from the Lord and His glory. Sometimes we see these pictures, you know, of cartoons or whatever of what hell might be like and there's some devils laying around or people sitting around and there's a few flames, but, you know, they're kind of chatting and it looks sort of pleasant in, so, in its own way. And, but you know what? It's not that way at all. It's not pleasant at all. It's complete loneliness. Take your loneliness to the absolute extreme and that's hell. Separated from God and everyone for an eternity. So God gives us the opportunity to get to know him here on this earth. To establish an eternal relationship. And if we do, he gives us life forever with him. That begins here and goes on. That's what eternal life is. It's a relationship with him. But those who say, no, I do not want to know God. I do not want to accept Jesus' death for me. will experience that eternal separation. When will that judgment come? When Jesus returns. It's clear in the passage. When he comes back, he will, he will bring judgment. He will bring justice finally at last. But he'll also bring relief. And we should expect this. We should expect life and freedom to those who know him. Verse 7, And to give relief or rest, wholeness, completeness to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. You see, finally everything will be right. Finally, when we see Him face to face, we will be right. We'll have life forever. And we'll be set free from all the suffering we've experienced. And that's what this word, this idea of relief or rest, wholeness, it's coming to a spacious place and finally, finally I'm free from all I've struggled with in this life. He wants us to expect power as well. Expect power in our lives. Verse 11. To this end also we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. Notice what Paul is praying for there, what he wants us to expect, is that God gives us desire now to walk with him and be part of his kingdom and to do good to love others and care for others. And he says, I pray that God would do this with power. You see, I think God wants us to expect that he will empower us to do whatever he's called us to do. He wants us to live with this expectation that as we step out to follow him, at that point we will receive exactly what we need to do what's right. That's the way God gives power, isn't it? It's, it's not... We get to store up a bunch of batteries of power that we can, you know, call on bit by bit at a time. No, you get the power just at the time you need it. There's a wonderful story in 1 Kings chapter 17 where Elijah the prophet is, uh, meets a widow with a young son and she's going to make her last meal, the last of her flour and the last of her oil, and to mix it together and make their last piece of bread before they die because they have no money, it's a drought, they're about to die. And Elijah says, make bread for me too. And she said, we don't even have enough for us. 
He said, just make bread for me, and tomorrow you'll have enough for more. And every day she used the last of it. And the next day, there was just enough for the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. That's how God gives his power to us, isn't it? You look and you feel like, I don't have what it takes, God. How how can I step out and do this? How can I love you? How can I minister in your name? How can I share Christ with this person? How can I keep going when it's hard? How can I endure? And God says, step out and I will give you exactly what you need, my power, at the right time. So expect power and ultimately, he says, expect glory. Expect glory. Verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice two types of glory here. That God might be glorified in us. You see, as we just keep growing, keep learning to trust him a little more, keep learning to love others a little better, Keep enduring in the midst of the trials and expecting that one day God's going to set everything right and he'll give us what we need as a loving father right now, day by day. As that happens, God gets glorified in us. But not only that, he says, and you will be glorified in him. You in him. You see, there's something wonderful that's happening in us through all this we are becoming more and more glorious creatures. You know that longing we all have for for fame, (laughs) for status, for people to look at us and say, wow, amazing, look at them. You know, in our world, we get so caught up in celebrities and sports heroes, kind of the wrong sorts of glory, but we're drawn into glory, aren't we? Because it's something so powerful. It's built into our hearts. Because God created us for glory, that we might become like him and be glorious. That's what he's built us for. And that's our expectation, that one day we will be glorious as well. I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says this, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. That's glory. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal every one of us is becoming either more and more glorious as we learn to trust him as our heavenly father or we're facing judgment if you've never trusted him as your father come now he offers it freely he gave you life and all he asks of you is that you say Lord I need you you died for me on the cross I need to enter into your life I receive you now. That's all it takes. If you've never done that, do it now so that you can have the joy of entering into His glory. All He wants of us as believers is to just keep growing, keep trusting, keep expecting 
that He will set all things right one day and expect His power in us so that we can keep following Him and trusting Him even though we suffer to know that our Heavenly Father is with us and will provide everything we need every step of the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You that You are our Father. That we can call You Father because You called us into Your family and You gave us life as a gift. Thank You that Jesus has borne the judgment we deserved. We freely receive the gift of life. And it is a gift, Lord. Nothing we could earn. We thank You for it. We thank You for forgiveness. We thank You for the hope we have that one day You will set all things right. So in the meantime, help us to live as Your children in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.